to you? What do you think of? If I say the word Moby, what do you think of? Well, I dare say one of two things. The first one, a big white sperm whale, the arch nemesis of Captain Ahab in that 19th century classic novel, Moby Dick, or simply called The Whale. Or you thought of a a Harlem-born electronic music DJ called Moby, songwriter and musician. And I guess your answer to what you thought of when you heard the word Moby depended on whether you were cool in the 90s or not. What you may not know is Moby the DJ's real name is Richard Melville Hall. And that middle name Melville is because his great-great-great-great-uncle was Herman Melville, who is none other than the 19th century American novelist who wrote Moby Dick. So it doesn't matter what else I say tonight, it's been worth coming. (laughs) One thing you may not know about the DJ Moby, if you know him at all, is that he is a self-professing Christian. He read through the Gospels in the mid-80s while he was at college with friends. And his words were that the Lord Jesus jumped off the page and I knew he was divine and I had to take his claim seriously. But he's not a very conventional person. And so he was in an editorial in Relevant magazine which was entitled The Two Sides of Moby. Why he loves Jesus but not the church. Moby, why he loves Jesus, but not the church. Now you have to say that is quite a popular attitude in our day. Even at times, I dare say, in our own lives. Most people have time for Jesus. Most people. They admire his teaching, aspire to his morals, evoke his revolutionary spirit, esteem his altruism. Muslims, Buddhists, the Baha'i all have time and admiration for Jesus. The church, on the other hand, is more embarrassing, less appealing, and thought of as superfluous to requirements and utterly irrelevant in 21st century life. It's downplayed at best and derided at worst. Like when your cool friend marries someone you don't like. And he used to enjoy hanging out, but now it's just awkward. That's so often how the world views Jesus, who we've got time for. But his bride, the church, is a little bit of an embarrassment. And kind of awkward. Well, if you ever feel like Moby, if you have ever felt like Moby, if you've lost your love for the church, you're never really seen the point of it. If you often feel like the annoyance, frustration and investment in church far outweighs the blessing of church, then what David writes to us in Psalm 122 is going to be so helpful. It is so good to be with you to join in this series, Songs for the Journey Home. I listened to Liam week one and Matt just last week, a real blessing. And so it is, with big shoes to fill, a tremble in my leg, 
that I invite you to turn to Psalm 122 as we look at a song for when you want to go it alone. It's on page 622 in your Bibles. For the more royalist among you, these were the words that Catherine Middleton walked down the aisle of Westminster Abbey on her wedding day too, as the C.H.H. Parry rendition was recited by the choir. Let's read Psalm 122 together. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Psalm 122, Psalm of David, and one that is so helpful in speaking to us when we're tempted to go it alone. New York. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. Now you're in New York. These streets will make you feel brand new. The lights will inspire you. Let's hear it for New York, New York, New York. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Been a long time gone, Constantinople. Now it's Turkish delight. On a moonlit night. I belong to Glasgow. I don't really. (laughs) Dear old Glasgow town. Well, what's the matter with Glasgow? For it's going round and round. I think that's what that should say. I'm only a common old working chap, as anyone here can see. But when I get a couple of drinks on a Saturday, Glasgow belongs to me. But it doesn't. There are an incredible number of songs about the cities of the world. An incredible number. If you Google it tonight and go on Wikipedia, you will be scrolling down. It will be like a gym workout. Barcelona, Vienna, Amarillo, London, San Jose and Las Vegas, to name but a few. And unless we're careful, Psalm 122 could easily be tarred with the same brush. Seen merely as nothing more than an ode to Jerusalem, a chart-topping success from 920 BC by King David... And the mighty men, that very underutilized Israeli pop group. So if that's not going to happen, I need to give you four foundations which will build a great thing for us to go on from as we explore this psalm together. Four things about Jerusalem that will be so helpful. The first one is this. Jerusalem is not in the Middle East. I assure you, I do actually have an A-level in geography, and my parents spent an enormous amount of money on my education. But biblically speaking, Jerusalem is not in the Middle East. 
great tension in the Bible between the Jerusalem as seen and the Jerusalem by faith. They don't seem to equate. The purple passages about Jerusalem don't seem to be reflected on the ground in that great and ancient city. Something Isaiah picks up in chapter 1, where Jerusalem is described as a place of prostitution, a dwelling place of murderers, a place of worthless silver, watered down wine where justice is withheld and bribery is commonplace. I think if David was going to that Jerusalem, he probably wouldn't sing that song. He'd probably sing the kind of song if you were going for a weekend break in Airdrie. Every time I mention a city in a sermon, there's always someone here and we always have a word at the door and I apologize profusely and go home and repent. But Jerusalem is not in the Middle East. Even in David's time when Israel at its best, Jerusalem is still just a normal city. Here's the second point about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Jerusalem is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Everything that Old Testament Jerusalem represented theologically is ours now through Jesus Christ. God's presence amongst his people, the place of sacrifice and communion with God, is no longer in a temple in Jerusalem, but is at the cross of the Lord Jesus, where hopeless and helpless sinners find grace and mercy and help. And a standing before God and a community birthed through the gospel. A time really has now come, now truly come, when we worship neither on a mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in the spirit and in truth. Number three, Jerusalem is foreshadowed by the local church. Jerusalem is foreshadowed by the local church. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in chapter 12. That Jesus has now established a new spiritual temple by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And he has brought us not to Mount Sinai or to the old Mount Zion, but to the new Mount Zion and a new Jerusalem. So 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourself speaking to a church are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is foreshadowed by the local church and finally... Jerusalem is finally waiting to come down and fill the earth. Those marvelous chapters at the very end of the story. Revelation 21 verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Jerusalem is not found in the Middle East. Jerusalem is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is foreshadowed by the local church. Jerusalem is finally waiting to come down and fill the earth. And so with those foundations in place, we're now ready to join our pilgrims who have just parked and gotten out of the car in Jerusalem in Psalm 122. They've been on a long journey from metaphorical Meshech in the far north, Ezekiel 38, and from metaphorical Kedar in the far east, 
where they've dwelt too long amidst hostile pagan hordes, Psalm 120. And they've journeyed through the hill country with treacherous terrain in boiling hot days and freezing cold nights with the Lord as their help. Psalm 121. Now finally, when the kids ask, are we there yet? The parents start singing Psalm 122. They're a musical family. And the psalm splits nicely into two parts. Verses 1 to 5 in praise of Jerusalem. Verses 6 to 9 in prayer for Jerusalem. Now I am English, so you will want to keep your Bibles open and your eyes fixed on them because there's absolutely no guarantee on what I tell you being the truth. So you want to follow along. So let's look at this. In praise of Jerusalem, the house, verse 1. He thinks back to where he's come from and the joy he felt at being invited and included on this journey to Jerusalem. See the corporate movement in verse 1. I, singular, was invited by they, third person plural, and together became us, third person plural. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It is a pilgrimage together. They're going on convoy to Jerusalem. This is not Lone Ranger stuff. This is a togetherness. They're going to meet God and they're doing it together. There is a horizontal and a vertical. We're going together to meet with God. This whole psalm cuts across our individualistic nature of our culture. No one does anything with anyone anymore. We have things like social media where we're so obsessed with seeing what everyone else is doing, we do nothing with anybody ourselves. We live like every man is an island and I am Ibiza. We even have coffee shops where lonely people go to be lonely together. And yet, what we learn in this first verse of this amazing psalm is that this is corporate. This is an us. This is a people. This is a community. In stark contrast, the psalmist says, no, real heartfelt, lasting and overflowing joy is found in gospel community with God and with his people. So he says, I was stoked, I was made up, I was jumping for joy, I was cock a hoop when my Christian brothers and sisters picked me up for church so I could be with all God's people in his special presence all together. I rejoiced. I don't know how you came to church this evening. Whether it was a quick bite of cheese on toast, last mouthful of tea and trudge to church. Or whether you were like a Psalm 122 person. God, I get to listen to your word tonight. I get to sing your praise. I get to seek your face. And I don't do it with my headphones on. I do it with a big group of people to encourage and spur me on to love and good deeds. I was absolutely made up when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. He cannot be a body part apart from the body. You cannot be a sheep of the Lord Jesus if you're not in his flock. And a temple made of one brick is an ugly temple. 
that's not even weatherproof. So don't even try. And I think we see this progression in the Psalms of Ascent that you've gone through so far. So Psalm 120 was I. It was me. All the time I feel this. I'm like that. And then Psalm 120, it becomes a you. The Lord watches over you. The sun will not harm you by day. But in Psalm 122, it's an us. It's a corporate thing. To try to say I'm going it alone is a futile, foolish, joyless and quickly curtailed journey. Psalm 122 encourages us that we're in this together. Look at verse 2. Our feet are standing in your gates. Jerusalem, they've made it. They've got there. They've journeyed long. It's been hot and tough. And they've got there and he says, it's worth it. I've arrived and it's our feet. Again, it's not alone. He's not there with a selfie stick shooting like he was going out of fashion. It's a big group photo where they asked another guy, would you take this for us? Standing in your gates. He's in awe of the grace that God has shown him. That he's welcome in God's city where God's presence symbolically sits. His very near presence. He's come from a strife-filled world into the communion of saints, but more than that, into communion with God. And it's all because God is so good and so kind that he's invited doesn't Paul pick this up in Romans 5? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We're here not because we made the grade, because we were more handsome, although looking out I could believe it. Because God has been outrageously gracious to us and invited us when we shouldn't have been welcomed. Our feet are standing in your gates. And then he comes to the city in verse 3. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. I used to live on the edge of the new forest. I don't like things closely compacted together. The idea of some kind of Jerusalem being like a celestial Singapore freaks me out. That I'm going to be on the 57th floor and people are going to be everywhere. And you're going to get on the bus and it's just going to be a sweat fest. Doesn't fill me with great joy, but I don't think that's what David has in mind. This idea of it being closely compacted together is a picture of unity, a picture of invincibility, invincibly being knitted together. It's God's people in God's place, experiencing God's very near presence. It's a place where everybody makes every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It's a real challenge. I'm English. Most of you are Scottish. We had a bit of a thing, didn't we? It was almost like you didn't like us anymore. That we live in a world that's fragmenting and fracturing. Where unity is a scarce commodity, and yet David writes, not in the people of God. It's real unity. 
And the world looks in. See, that's amazing. I've never seen anything like that. Never seen anything like this unity that the gospel produces. So at Brunsfield, I tell them they're weird all the time. Just say it, you're weird. Because I look out on Sunday, I did it this morning, and I thought, what a weird group of people. Like nowhere in the city can you see an 86-year-old chatting to a six-year-old who they're not related to. You can't see new babies being passed around the congregation like polo mints. You can see Italians chatting with Indians, chatting with Iranians at Brunsfield. I don't know if they're very selective. We won't know until the Icelandic turn up, and then we'll see. We've got biochemists chatting with primary school children. A little old lady sitting in the corner having a cup of tea with medical students. I don't know if they're looking for some free advice. They're so weird. And it's so precious. And it needs everybody to be involved and working it together. So that the division of the world doesn't creep into the church. Because the church is a place made beautiful by the gospel and makes the gospel look beautiful. It is the most perfect virtuous circle. That the best apologetic the church has that the gospel works is the community that the gospel births. And so people come in and they go, oh, Charlotte Chapel, they're weird. And then somebody will say, Robin Turton, why are you so weird? And after a huge list, (laughs) he'll say, well, it's because of the Lord Jesus. That's what he keeps us together. He keeps building us up. He gave everything for us. So it means that we're prepared to give anything that's needed for anybody else in our church family. It's weird, but it's beautiful, and it's compelling. Jerusalem is built like a city that's closely compacted together. And then we have the tribes. They come along in verse 4. Jerusalem is where all the tribes go up to. Now, Old Testament Jerusalem is a peculiar place. The first time we hear it is in Genesis 14 when this kind of mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, turns up to meet Abraham. And then when Joshua conquers the promised land, there's one city where the Jebusites are like limpets and they're not going anywhere. So Jerusalem is never actually inherited by any of the tribes. It's in the area of Judah, but it's never properly handed over to them. So in 2 Samuel 5, when David finally conquers it, it's absolutely neutral. And I think in God's wisdom, the reason that it's absolutely neutral is it belongs to all the tribes. So when they go up to the temple, it's not like they're treading on someone else's um, property. You know, like when you go to a really um, clean family for um, Sunday lunch, and you're like, Please let there be a coaster somewhere else. I'm going to do something awful. Kind of like that. It's a neutral place. It's a place where everyone's welcome and it belongs to everyone. And so this is where all the tribes go up because the Lord told them to for special festivals. 
to do their part, to be together in his presence at special times of the year to remember his goodness and his grace in their lives. But this Old Testament rallying point is a mere foreshadowing of a greater gathering of not just 12 tribes of one country, but of every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathered before the throne of grace to praise the name of the Lord forever. Not God's people by race in Abraham, but God's people by grace in Jesus Christ. That's why the the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is so unbelievable at uniting people. Because as we're all humbled under grace, suddenly we think less of ourselves, more of Christ, and suddenly we find that we can all get along. As I decrease and Christ increases, suddenly my pride and my personality and my sinful nature doesn't get in the way. Because religion generates either pride or despair, but grace generates unity. Absolute failures for whom Jesus succeeded. Dirty sinners whom Jesus died for so that they might be washed and forgiven. Treasonous rebels whom Jesus pursued, sought and saved. That is good news. That I'm not here because I'm on performance-related acceptance. I'm here because I was very needy and very hopeless and absolutely helpless. Jesus came and said, I can meet your need. I can give you hope. And I'm here to help. And as we respond to the gospel, we're brought into his family forever. So freeing can be myself trusting that grace is sufficient. Jesus welcomes me, washes me, cleanses me, clothes me in his perfect righteousness and puts me in a family. That's deal. Every day. Every day. If I wanted people to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect son of God was required that I might be saved. The most humiliating gospel that could ever be whispered about me is bled from Golgotha, As Jesus dies for me. As we all gather together afresh. We realize that mercy is bounteous. Bounteous grace is sufficient. And it's all because of Jesus and not about me. Everyone together united, humbled, under grace. A family that's going to be from every tribe and tongue and nation of the world. And will be singing all together forever mesmerized. By the glory of the Lord Jesus. So what we're doing tonight is like a practice. We're practicing. Before the rest of our family join us. We get to sing forever. By the one who's captivated all of our hearts. It's a great vision. And it will happen. Because Jesus will win and the gospel does work. It's absolutely certain. And even now we get to be involved in recruiting more people into our family. If that doesn't put a little bit of oomph in our evangelism this week, then we need more help. Lastly, the thrones. The thrones. This is the place 
where David ruled, but great David's greatest son, Christ Jesus, will rule forever. A place that is run brilliantly. Where the trams are completed on budget and on time. Where the bins are collected every minute. And the seagulls will never get a look in. This is a brilliant place. Because we live in a world ruined by bad government. We do. I have three Sudanese asylum seeker friends. One is called Musab. One is called Borai. One is called Abdul. We meet together and we read the Bible. And they tell me the stories about why they risk life and limb to escape Sudan. As As they tell me about the brutality, the corruption, the exploitation. I go, I can see why you left. I can see why you left. That Sudan is ruined by horrendous governments. Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Laos, Turkmenistan, Eritrea, Mozambique, Somalia, to name but a few. Our world, many areas of our world are ruined by bad government. Not this kingdom though the city of peace ruled by the prince of peace the city of righteousness ruled by the righteous judge of all the earth and it's foreshadowed here in the local church where Jesus reigns where he's enthroned in our lives and in our gathering so that when we get into his perfect presence where he rules and reigns fully and visibly I go thank you Jesus That you're making all things new. Where elections are a thing of the past. Because you're doing it perfectly. And we never want to replace you. David praises the earthly Jerusalem on behalf of the Old Testament pilgrim. We praise and love the prototype Jerusalem seen now in the local church. And we will soon praise in and inhabit the perfect Jerusalem. That was Pilgrim's finally home. You see, Moby makes great tunes, catchy beats, but he's bereft of any wisdom or insights about the absolute necessity, the wonderful beauty, and the awesome privilege it is to be involved in a local church, to be gathering with God's people in God's place under God's rule. So how can we be part of this community? Well, it's told us in verses 6 to 9. In prayer for Jerusalem. Do you see how it takes commitment? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. See David's heart cry. This isn't a nest feathering exercise. His most pressing prayer is for peace. Three times. He says, Jerusalem, may it be a place of peace. But not just an absence of strife. Not that kind of peace. This is not Pax Romana. That beautiful Hebrew word, shalom. That your church, your city, would be a place of wholeness, of prospering, of it fulfilling its intended function. 
That's what I want for Brunsfield. I want it to be a place of wholeness and completeness in the Lord Jesus that's fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus called it. I'm sure that's what you want for your church. Charlotte Chapel, Shalom, almost alliterates. It would be wonderful, but it's going to take commitment. It's going to take all of us sacrificing and pouring ourselves out. It's going to take every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's going to involve more time than we have to give, more money than we have to spend, and more effort than we ourselves can exert. And we all need to play our part. The problem is we're programmed for capitalism, that we want the minimum investment for the maximum output. And yet the economics of the kingdom is completely the other way around. If what Jesus says is true, that to give is more blessed than to receive, then we want to look for the maximum output, for the minimum yield, isn't it? If we honestly believe that, we'll pour ourselves out and pour ourselves out, and we'll never be giving enough, and we'll always be blessed. And it'll work, because Jesus promises it will. What a place where it's not about getting to the top, but it's about sinking right to the bottom and wishing you could go lower. Where true greatness was truly seen in being a servant of all. This kind of commitment, for the sake of my family and friends, I'll say, peace be within you. Do pull out all the stops. I'll be all in. I'll do whatever it takes that my brothers and sisters in Christ will be blessed. A place Jesus is building that is hammering and breaking down the very gates of hell. A place of real shalom. This is the Queen Mary ship, now moored in Long Beach, California. It was built as an opulent cruise liner. And for five years of her life, she was the pinnacle of what it meant to travel in luxury. Despite her enormous size, she was kitted out for only 3,000 passengers who could cruise the world in absolute decadence and unparalleled style. But in 1939, the ship was called to cease cruising and instead be fitted as a troop carrier for World War II. After stripping everything out, putting bunk beds in the swimming pool, the ship could now hold 15,000 troops. Here's why this is important. Because many of us are living our lives, cruising through, looking for real luxury and comfort. And yet Jesus is calling us to be involved in the war that he's won. In order that we might give our lives just to move the flag a little bit further forward. It's going to take real commitment church is going to be that haven of shalom that place pictured in verses 1 to 5 it's going to recruit it's going to require all of us to be in it all together doing anything we can to move the flag forward pulling out all the stops just to see one more brick put in the wall of the spiritual temple that Jesus is building It's going to take real concern. 
See how other person, sacrificial, the end of the psalm is. I'm going to pray. The one thing I would cash in all my chips at Brunsfield for is if we could pray better together. If we wouldn't just have the organ recital where we pray for so-and-so's kidney, so-and-so's foot, so-and-so's leg. But we said, Lord Jesus, would you come and take your place and make us everything that you want us to be for your glory? Real concern. A place inhabited and contributed to for the sake of others. A place of sweat and tears to see others esteemed more highly than ourselves. A place that was making regular and huge deposits of treasure in heaven. Knowing that everything else is just going to be moths and rust at the end of the day. A place of commitment, a place of prayer, a place of real concern. Where family wasn't just a buzzword, but it was a tangible reality in the community that Jesus is pulling together. This is a great psalm. It speaks of a glorious past. It speaks of a radically exciting present. And it speaks of a glorious future. A song to instill worship, invite challenge, inspire participation, and illustrate the glorious gospel of Christ Jesus and the community it produces works. A song that we can sing with the Lord Jesus himself as the chief worship leader in finishing and thank you so much for your patience let me tell you about this man his name is Hidetsugu Aneha and he's a Japanese architect he's currently serving a lengthy prison sentence because he falsified data which meant buildings were declared earthquake proof when they were anything but The scandal being is that when an earthquake hit in Japan, people would run to his buildings thinking that they were safe, but they were anything but, that they would fall down around their ears. They were putting themselves in more danger by trusting in things that weren't safe. The truth is that many people, many of us, have been lulled, dulled and deceived into thinking that money, morality, charity and material possessions will bring safety and security when trouble hits or the end comes. And this psalm is so clear that the only safe place, the only safe place, the only place where you'll last for eternity in God's glorious presence The only place of undeniable safety is to stand in Christ Jesus amongst his people. Truly safe. In a Jerusalem that was, a Jerusalem that is, and a Jerusalem that will forever be. And so, church is a glorious thing that takes effort and don't go it alone. Let me pray.